Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome all to Real Vision. My name is Santiago Velez, I'm the co-founder of Block Digital Corporation, and I'm honored today to welcome our guest, uh, Mr. Rohan Gray, professor. Uh, so welcome. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I first of all, I'd like to thank my thank you and um, just want to extend my appreciation for for this, you know, for coming on the show and, and talking, particularly in light of a lot of the kind of negativity and antagonism uh, behind the subject of today's interview. So I appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah, um, nice. So today I'd like to talk about the uh, Stable Act and we'll get into what that is and what that means for uh, crypto. Uh, this, this particular segment is under the Real Vision umbrella and uh, the, the crypto channel in general. So a lot of uh, people watching are very interested in potentially the ramifications it might have um, on their uh, investment in crypto or their participation going forward. So well, I, I will get into that. Uh, but uh, before that, I'd like to talk a little bit about just the fundamental principles of money um, and governance and perhaps how those two uh, things interplay. Um, and then from there, go on to uh, describing specifically in the United States, how that that interplay has arisen to lend itself to where we are now. So um, my first question, I guess, would be, what are your views around uh, the nature of properties of money and with that uh, governance? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing to start with is that from, from our view, or at least from my view, um, the people that I work with most of the time, uh, money is a, a creature of law. It's a, it's a legal institution. Uh, it has a material component so that there's a difference between money, you know, issued on clay tablets 5,000 years ago and money issued in, in the year of the internet. Um, but that ultimately uh, money exists in a larger framework and a larger set of, a larger set of uh, legal institutions that include things like property rights, contract, corporate law, accounting law, uh, and, and public governance, including things like taxes and, and fees and fines and, and other things like that. So there's a story that you might hear in your economics textbook that, that you know, in the beginning there was barter and then money emerged to solve the, the question of the double coincidence of wants and that over time uh, money kind of evolved from you know metal coins to paper to to account entries and then eventually to digital and and that story is just wrong historically there's there's no historical evidence for that story it's it's a it's a fairy tale and the, the anthropologists and historians and archaeologists who've actually looked at this question come away with it with a much more nuanced story which is that Money has been tied to uh, public governing institutions since we started living in societies beyond, you know, tribal kinship-based societies where there were institutions that governed relationships uh, that went beyond sort of face-to-face -face relationships and, and required you to be able to interact with people in, in sort of large-scale, potentially anonymous or, or certainly stranger-based interactions. Uh, and in those situations, what usually happens is that, uh, that, that sort of qualitative credit 
the idea of sort of I owe you one or I did a favor for you in the past, you do a favor for me, what we would often call gift economies, um, give way uh, under conditions of the threat of violence, usually sort of tribes or kinship relationships that would otherwise be going to war with each other decide that a more convenient way to address those problems is to is to use some sort of monetary exchange uh, or that there are large centralized governing entities that want to accumulate resources to perpetuate that governance to maintain the laws to maintain the property rights the contracts to build production systems that everybody can can live off of, you know, large centralized farming communities, things like that. And the way that they do that is they impose obligations uh, denominated in a unit of account. And that unit of account can derive from, you know, barley grain or can derive from, uh, you know, uh, shanks of, meth, uh, of meat in a, in a religious ceremony or something else. But that at the point at which your qualitative relationships with other people. You know, I, I owe my mate because he bought me a round of drinks and also because he was best man at my wedding, right? Once that relationship becomes quantified and alienable, that is to say, I don't owe them a favor in the broader context of our relationship with each other, but I actually owe them exactly $6. And if I don't pay them $6, I'm in, you know, in, in a condition of sort of incurring legal liability. <laughs> that once that happens, I can disassociate that debt, that, that, amount that I owe from our broader relationship and I can start trading it to other people. So if, if they owe somebody else $6 and then I owe them $6, well, I can pay that third person and then we're all square because suddenly it's not, it's not a, a, a relationship within a broader uh, uh, ongoing relationship. It's a particular debt with a particular quantity. Um, and so pu public money emerges out of that system. And once you have a unit of account and you have some central instrument that can be used to pay debts to the collective, usually that instrument gains larger circulating value, gets what, what we could call a private liquidity premium. And then, of course, people issue their own credit instruments within that unit of account. Right, IOUs become something that people can issue themselves. So that money exists in a spectrum and a hierarchy, but historically speaking, it's the public money that exists at the top because it's the one issued by the same entity that's ultimately enforcing the laws in that jurisdiction. Wow. Okay, that's that's incredible and a lot to unpack. Um, and I'll admit, first off, that I didn't have uh, an appreciation, perhaps, for that that um, that view and and maybe what the evidence suggests uh, based on the the archaeology. Uh, but so for me, it seems almost like that's a technological innovation. Uh, it may not have been with computers and such, but it allowed a scalability to emerge for relationships and interactions between humans that did not necessarily uh, correspond one-to-one. -one. You could essentially scale value uh, either non-geographically or non-chronologically um, and then uh, basically be able to transact as a society. So to me, it's very much a technological construction as much as it kind of a sociological one. So I can definitely- Yes, I, I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah, people, yeah, people like Denise Schmant Besserant, the archaeologist who looks at the origins of writing that was in accounting records. And those accounting records were 2D representations of 3D tokens. Originally, people would put basically a tax receipt. If you pay one cow, you get a little clay thing in the shape of a cow. And they would put it in a clay tube so that the tax collector couldn't kind of steal them. And they would write on the outside of the clay tube, this, has, this clay tube has three cow tokens inside. And eventually they realized they didn't actually need anything inside as long as the markings on the outside were, were accurate and, and authentic. And then eventually they said, you know what, why don't we just start writing this on, on a flat sheet rather than around the edge of a tube? And so the origins of, of you know, early clay tablets were in tax receipts. Uh, and, and, you know, people like Michael Hudson and others at the Peabody Museum and others have done archaeological research that backs up uh, uh, Denise Schmant-Besserand's work on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it seems too like each as you as you walked us through that each time there was a, a, a component of efficiency first of all, um, and then recognition that the abstraction itself is the kind of repository of the value, not not some underlying collateral or other uh, you know unit of account. It was the money itself. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the clay tablets, the clay tokens were were valueless in and of themselves, other than that they represented something that the legal authority, the scribes could recognize for their purposes, right? And if you look at the early people like uh, William Gertzman at, at Yale School of Management says that this was the earliest form of financial contract. Right, those those clay tubes were proof that a contract had taken place, um, and so yeah, this is this is the earliest sort of origins of, of the the physical aspect of a legal instrument in some respects. But it really is that legal determination where the value proposition comes in. I mean, yes, there are benefits to economies of scale here, and that's why you can have large governance um, of of societies that you know until that point would have required you to know everybody's name and who they're related to and things. Um, but the question of kind of how much does killing your brother cost, you know, compared to stealing someone's cow, compared to how much you have to contribute to the annual equinox feast in order to get your share at the at the ceremony, you know, at, at the sort of, you know, um, Bacchanalian ceremony or something. Those are questions of public governance, right? Those are questions that historically some sort of political leader, whether it's a shaman or a warlord or a council of elders or whatever else, would be making decisions about. And so that unit of account, is political, is a question of social value. It doesn't just emerge naturally from sort of private exchange or anything like that. That's fascinating because I think there's a layer behind that. Like you said, you're you're referring to the governance structures, um, the the violence or the use of force that ultimately is at the root of the state and that these associations are what ensure enforceability of uh, contracts, right? That, you know, two human beings can enter into an arrangement. And if there's a dispute, which inevitably there always are, uh, because of our varying perspectives, opinions, and, and things that happen, um, there has to be an intermediator there, somebody that's neutral and that there is a common law or standard that both participants can reference and arrive at, you know, a conclusion, some determinism. But, you know, the state enforces the contracts um, and by extension, the value that those contracts are denominated in, I guess would it would make sense that the state has to be the ultimate purview, you know, has the purview, jurisdiction of, of that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it neutral. I would say maybe disinterested, at least in theory, disinterested in that particular, you know, conflict. Obviously, the state has has values that it wants to try and achieve through that system. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just finished teaching contracts, contract law, and and you know, the idea that the contracts is just between two private parties is is a myth, right? The, the state comes in and interprets contracts. It fills in gaps. It reinterprets terms when 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 doing so is necessary to keep you know broader principles of contract law um, running. And my old law professor at Columbia, Katarina Pistol has a great book called The Code of Capital, where she talks about how lawyers use private law, use the the, the pillars of contract and property rights and tort and and accounting law uh, to to construct the kinds of capital that are worth value in in today's economy, whether that's owning hundreds of acres on a ranch or having dollars in a bank account or having a claim over the house that runs the, you know, runs the server that contains cryptographically secured keys. All of those are property rights claims that require a theory of property law to to back up in moments of of conflict or or you know legitimizing. I think we all know by now things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up. It's really hard. 
And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Yeah, so, okay, so let's... Let's let's hone down now and get more specific, I guess, into U.S. law and jurisdiction and governance um, and that specific tradition as opposed to other other countries um, and then get into what the dollar represents and you know where that where does that authority come from? Who constructs it? Uh, who, who gets to, to govern it, et cetera? So can you tell us give us a little history lesson on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, obviously, one of the earliest things is that the U, uh, U.S. you know European colonizers came here and engaged in what could be seen as as sort of uh, legal fictions to acquire a lot of the land upon which the American Empire now exists. And and you know, you look at the work by people like Casey Park at Georgetown Law School is that they use the fiction of contract and voluntary engagement there, uh, but engaged in contracts that uh, Native Americans had no, you know, understanding of the legal context for and often got them into debt for the explicit purpose of eventually dispossessing them of that land. Um, and they used English legal traditions of, of mortgage law and things, but they actually had to twist those legal traditions, precisely because uh, English law had a, had significant protections for people from being kicked off their land. You know, if you had your ancestral lands, you could be in debt for generations, but not be kicked off. But in, in the American context, the aim was to kick Native Americans off their land, and that required sort of twisting existing English mortgage law to be able to do that. Um, but once you once you had an Amer- a kind of European colony functioning here, you had a number of different experimentations with paper money, and people like the economic historian Farley Grubb have written on this a lot. That there were there were varying degrees of success about those systems, but they actually resembled our modern kind of floating fiat exchange systems uh, a lot more than they represented the money in between. Because these uh, communities, these colonies, would issue dollars for the specific purpose of promoting development in their colonies, with the aim of taxing them back out by destroying the money. Right? They would they would literally have burning ceremonies. They would know that the purpose of issuing the money, the paper money they would issue, was to promote the development of their community and that the way that you kept that kind of under control was you would would burn it when you received it back in payment of taxes. So people would call money there the kind of lifeblood of the body politic and the the sort of the the essence upon which the community runs. Um, And it was in the act of creating their own collective money there as a community that they began to form the uh, distinct American identity that eventually led to the revolution, the Declaration of Independence from Britain. It was the act of being a community with its own money distinct from the British crown that said eventually, well, we actually don't like you guys running our, you know, our economy from, from across the pond. Um, and if you look at historians like Woody Holton, constitutional historians, um, obviously there's a lot of different um, uh, uh, angles that you can look at the founding period of the American Republic. Uh, but that one important story uh, that, that he has traced out and others in recent time historians have traced out is that Article 1, Section 10, which prohibits states from issuing their own currency, was one of, if not the most important provision in the Constitution. They had tried with the Articles of Confederation uh, to uh, to have a system where there's a federal government that doesn't have its own monetary powers, and it, it didn't work. And so part of the goal of the the formation of the constitution was specifically to give the federal authority control over the monetary system needed to promote development of the nation as a whole or as of the union as a whole and that required taking away powers to create money from state governments 
And so Article 1, Section 10 is not the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. That's Article 1, Section 8. Article 1, Section 10 is it shall be illegal or states shall be prohibited from issuing their own money and receiving anything back in payment of taxes other than the official money. And so the idea there was not only to give the power to the federal government, but to take it away from other actors who might be threatening that power. And we saw that over the next 150 years with uh, cases like the legal tender cases in the 1860s and eventually the gold standard cases, the gold clause cases in the 1930s, where actors basically said, this isn't fair or you're changing the rules of the monetary system. And what the Supreme Court said time and time again, whenever those challenges came up, is no, the ability to control money is a fundamental prerogative of the sovereign. It is the basis of sovereign authority. It's the same authority that allows them to determine property rights and contracts and to set the rules of the game for the economy more broadly. You know, if we don't want slavery to exist, we outlaw contracts that allow you to sell yourself into slavery, right? If we want certain kinds of monetary outcomes, we we prohibit the activities that destabilize that monetary system. Um, and so what you saw throughout that period was that there were institutions created by state and federal actors that functioned with some degree of private autonomy, that is to say banking institutions, and they were given explicit charters. Back in the day, it would be you would actually pass a piece of legislation granting a, a bank charter, right? The Bank of Massachusetts would get a piece of legislation saying we're establishing this bank. And it was explicitly acknowledged that those institutions were tools of public development. Right? It's the equivalent of the Panama Canal. Right, You create the Panama Canal Corporation or, or whatever else, and they got limited liability and they got other exemptions from regular liability because they were serving public purpose. Now, over time, those institutions gained more autonomy and started believing that they were completely independent and owed the public nothing and that their job was only to make profits, etc. Um, but that, that, that fundamental relationship uh, of of corporate law and limited liability and the bank license charter as being an extension of public monetary authority goes back to the earliest banking charters in American history. Uh, my my doctoral advisor Bob Hockett and Sally Omarova wrote a great piece called Special uh, Vestigial. Uh, the, the, the origins of banking and corporate law, right? something along those lines. I'm, I'm getting the title wrong, but uh, if you look that up, special. Uh, vestigial or, or uh, I forget the forgetful name. Anyway, if you look it up, but basically their point is that all of modern corporate law that's built on limited liability, that is to say you can basically go bankrupt, but you don't have to pay all of your debtors because you can just wipe the slate clean and start again, is an extension of public subsidy. You know, that's, that's a classic example of privatized gain socialized loss. And that's because the early corporate form was like the early bank charter, considered a explicit tool of public development. This is a way to promote development is to allow actors to create these entities with the, with the goal of sort of serving public purposes. So if we look at the modern system today, we have a system where, yes, there's a public authority. It issues the currency. It, it sits at the top of the, the monetary hierarchy, both the treasury with treasury securities and, and cash and the Federal Reserve with Federal Reserve liabilities, uh, reserves and things like that. And there are a system of private licensed chartered banking institutions underneath that at the state and the federal level that play an important role of basically having public subsidy in exchange for uh, for regulation and oversight. Um, and then below that, you have a number of actors engaging in activities that look and talk like, uh, like banking activities that are not licensed. And that area, that space, that sort of marginal shadow space 
um, often relies directly on the banking system and in turn the central banking system to survive, but is, is one layer further removed and once again convinces itself that it is purely private and able to earn profits and not structurally sort of dependent on the public monetary system uh, out of which it emerges. Uh, and it, it becomes a sort of recurring source of systemic risk uh, in, in, in the euro dollar market, in the money market, mutual fund market, in the repo market, uh, in, in the early debates over banknotes in the 19th century. It's, it's the sort of same story over and over that private actors think that the, the banking power is, is theirs to use how they see fit with no accountability. And, and either before a crisis or after a crisis, uh, that's shown to be a fiction and public authorities have to come in and clean up the mess. Um, okay. Wow. A lot of, lots to unpack there. Thank you. That's, that's, that's incredible. Um, so I guess at the foundational layer, uh, the premise is that the authority for the government to issue currency into existence comes from the citizenry. And by extension, uh, that's a, a public good. And uh, by being a public good, we all have a, 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 both a responsibility and a right to um, influence that and participate in it. And so the authority for for you know the articles in the constitution come from the proper governance which then is brought into real into into, into real world action through acts you know federal reserve act or a banking license act etc through legislation through our representatives right so we participate in that public good and that dot dollar representation of value through public governance and through the fact that you know we're a a, a representative democracy so Beneath all those layers of, uh, of of congressional acts, et cetera, are the people who actually execute on it, whether it be the Federal Reserve in terms of their monetary policies, the Treasury, and then, like you said, the layers beneath it of, of the banking structures, et cetera. And so what you're saying is that on top of this kind of public precipice, there, are, there could arise or have historically arisen over and over uh, more of a parasitic type of element that... Uh, takes this public good, that's this mutualized construction or abstraction, and decides to kind of siphon off that value for its own benefit. It's not for the types of um, charter that a, that a incorporation was meant for, right? To to, to create this this uh, public good. So, I think I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate you for for itemizing that in in such detail. So yeah, I just clarify one quick thing, sure. on that, which is just that that you know we can have a whole kind of constitutional debate about where legitimacy comes there, but I think in this situation, sort of the the question of how democratic these institutions are is an ongoing iterative process, right? If if, if it's only white men that can vote, that's not particularly democratic, and and we can we can have questions about how legitimate the entire system is, but I think the, the relevant point here is that the the entire market sort of quote unquote market economy that we live in is one that is constructed upon public law, right? There is no source of contract and property rights and accounting and corporate law and things that is divorced from that larger constitutional system, right? The same system that creates the market is creating the money and the same kinds of accountability and legitimacy questions arise on both. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, the alternative would be, you know, we would all have kind of private armies executing on our contracts to, to resolve the disputes, right? I mean, it would be yeah. um, theoretically- yeah, Murray Rothbard is, yeah, Murray Rothbard is consistent that that's what he wants. I'm not sure how many uh, you know, average people would agree that that's a superior system than the one that we have right now, even taking into account the democratic legitimacy issues with, with most states today. So. Right, yeah. Okay, wow, excellent. So 
you know, moving flash forward, uh, we'll leave the, the, the gold debates aside. Uh, that's a whole nother uh, rabbit hole we could go down and, and the Thanks. issuing of gold coins. <laughs> uh, but we'll flash forward here to our current um, reality, the digitization of pretty much everything. And this idea of using cryptography, uh, decentralized uh, ledger technology, blockchain. Um, you know, for me personally, I saw Bitcoin as a political statement very early on as kind of this criticism of perhaps this lack of proper de democratic representation in these centralized authorities that are uh, supposed to be the good stewards of public good. Um, so I feel it's, uh, for me personally, that it was a, a very much a criticism of that of that problem, right? And so rather than try to engage the, the in the political sense and ameliorate the problem, invented kind of this parallel private money. Um, so in your view, uh, do you think that citizenry humans have the kind of a fundamental right to create private money external from the public uh, money or, or what, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think private units of account and private credit and 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 circulating media, I think, is 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 valuable and important as a as a way for people to express themselves in the economy. I think where I probably disagree is I don't see this occurring outside the public monetary system, right? I think of this as like making a private contract. You can make a private contract, but it is still governed by contract law. Now, those those kind of the people that sort of saw Bitcoin as an ex a way to leave the state, most of them live in a jurisdiction that requires them to have you know, property rights in the house that they're living in. If I came in and started squatting in their kitchen, I'm sure they would have problems pretty quickly, right? Maybe they pick up a gun before they called the cops, but they pick up a gun because they believe they have a right to private property there. And so I think that often this kind of, uh, we're going we're gonna to leave the, the regular economy and build our own uh, is a fiction. And it, it, it's a fiction that only comes sort of later on. And even people like, you know, John Perry Barlow with his declaration of the independence of cyberspace, which I respect a lot, you know, it's not actually a representation of the internet today. There are there are all sorts of governing rules and laws and public institutions behind the internet. I mean, I come from a country where there the, the big underwater sea cables that you know connect Australia to the internet. There's about three. You know, you, you take them out and we're fucked. So I don't think that this idea that we built this sort of cyberspace completely immunized from the real economy is an actually accurate representation of the internet 30 years after John Perry Barlow's declaration. And I don't think that Bitcoin's declaration of independence from public money is, is actually an accurate description of what's gone on either. But I do think that people have a right to create their own units of account. I've actually written about that. I've proposed legislation to allow people to create complementary currencies. And I think it's, it's, it's a totally legitimate kind of space for experimentation on the edges of the monetary system. What our bill is dealing with, though, and I think this is where the difference comes in, is instruments that are designed to function like public money, that is to say, in the public unit of account and function with a stable value relative to the dollar tokens issued or the dollar instruments issued by the public authority. And in that moment, and, and I've had this sort of argument with people like people at Coin Center and things, this isn't the same exactly as counterfeiting because issuing an unlicensed bank deposit or issuing an unlicensed stable coin is not the same as issuing a US dollar. But functionally and macroeconomically speaking, the effect is very similar because what you're doing is you're messing with or you're engaging with areas that are about or, or, or constructed around a public monetary unit. They're not how many dollars denominated in Bitcoin, it's how many dollars denominated in US dollars. And the point of these instruments is to function alongside and interchangeably with public dollars in, in maybe with some benefits around the edges of the, the payment system design or about regulatory, you know, less regulatory scrutiny. But the goal of these instruments is to 
satisfy the same kinds of payments that public dollars can satisfy. And that's where the risk creeps in because you have actors who have a structural incentive to downplay the risks of their own instruments every time. Now, whatever people might hate about the state, whatever might they think about you know, inflation and anything else, the one thing a state that issues its own currency can always guarantee is that if you, someone, if you bring a public debt for $100, they can pay $100. Now, the real purchasing power may fluctuate. You may think that's tantamount to theft, but legally speaking, for at least about 500 years, this principle of what we call nominalism and, and uh, there's a legal historian at Edinburgh, used to be at Cambridge, named David Fox, who has a great piece on this called The Case of Mixed Monies, which is a case from the, um, the 16th century, that if you promise to pay $100, your obligation is to pay $100. Not to pay the purchasing power of $100 on a certain date in a certain year, it's to pay $100 on demand. And that $100, even if the price of eggs changes, can still satisfy $100 worth of taxes. $100 worth of legal liabilities, right? You get a court judgment for a contractual dispute. You have to pay $10,000. You provide $100 bills, you're done. Even if the price of, you know, even if inflation in the meantime has changed. So the nominal commitment to pay on demand a nominal fixed value amount is where money comes in. And that's, if you look at the history of banking law, that's exactly where the fight over the safety of bank deposits has come around and bank liabilities. You would issue a $100 banknote, and because you wouldn't trust the bank, the next day it would only be worth $95, right? Or you would issue $100 of bank deposits, and then there'd be a bank run, and they'd only give you $50 back. And what government guarantees and bank regulation over history has been about is been ensuring that every time a bank issues a liability for $100, you're going to get $100 back, whether that's deposit insurance or Federal Reserve support or the receivership process by which banks are taken over by other banks so that the depositors don't get left on the hook as a creditor in bankruptcy, whatever it is, that the, the goal is if you issue something that walks and talks like $100, you can get $100 back. And that's why this bill and, and our work has been focusing on stable coins, not private currencies issued in their own units of account. Because whatever the risks are there, and I think there are risks for the record, but I'm not, I'm not trying to regulate the amount of existence. Whatever the risks are there in those private currencies, they aren't trying to infringe upon the core monetary unit of account issued by the public that's the basis of the entire public legal system and the economy. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Let's unpack that, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. A lot to digest there. So. Just for clarity, uh, for those watching, uh, the Staple Act, and, and we'll get into exactly what it states, uh, but it really wasn't trying to establish jurisdiction upon the private expression of you know, digital currencies in and of themselves, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. No. It's, it's an attempt to basically make clear that the authority for issuing of, the, of a dollar in the United States is, resides solely with the government and with whatever legislations uh, bring that into, into effect. And really no one else has the, the power or the ability to ever guarantee that that issuance can be redeemed, right? There's only one entity that has that power. You can come up with all sorts of theories of why your business model is safe and why three to one over collateralization, you know, reduces the risk to be so small that you think it's nothing. And I think what, what our analysis or our argument is, is that those risks never get to nothing. They might get to a, a, a black swan event, but that black swan event is exactly what financial crises are about. 
They come about once every 40 years and then they destroy everything. And it's those moments that we're actually most concerned about. And it's precisely the, the actors who have a structural incentive to downplay those risks because they benefit on the upswing that are the ones complaining so much now that those risks are overblown. Well, of course, if 100% of shadow banks throughout history have believed that shadow banking regulation was unnecessary. That's that's their job is to say that it's unnecessary because their business model is based upon issuing a form of public money without the necessary regulatory oversight and profiting from the difference between that and the instruments that do have regulatory oversight, right? Arbitrage. If it was pro- that's right. If it was profitable to issue bank deposits relative to shadow banking deposits, there'd be banks already. The reason it's profitable is because you get all of the short-term benefits and none of the costs. And where those where that rubber hits the road is when eventually the music stops and then they say, oh, well, who could have known, right? Or I'll be gone, you'll be gone. And it's someone else's problem when the music stops down the track. In the meantime, I made a lot of profit and it looked like it was safe right up until the crack in the foundations caused the whole thing to come down. And so this bill fits into a long history of, first of all, regulating banknotes in the 1800s. And then regulating actors who issued deposits, account, you know, account entry deposits, uh, without without a banking license. And this is the next iteration of that, looking to the future where, and you know, I use this as a sort of jokey example. Um, I think stablecoin is the sort of internet native term for what we what we have historically known as bank deposits or banknotes. So that it could be in the future, you know, our kids are using things that all look like stablecoins, and they say, "What's a bank deposit?" You say, "Oh, that's what we used to call stablecoins." You know, what's a banknote? Well, that's the thing that we used to print stablecoins onto as a piece of paper, right? So the term stablecoin here is is the internet native version of what. Uh, what a banknote or a bank deposit would have been in different eras when there was a different technology uh, as the basis of our financial system. Well, um, we'd be kind of doing our viewers a disservice if we didn't kind of define from a technological standpoint, at least on, in the context of uh, crypto, what stable coins are and how even that term has incredible ambiguity behind it because of the various ways in which you can guarantee, quote, that I, I use that term loosely, the stability of the coin. Uh, yeah. So, from my perspective, the way I understand stable coins is you can have uh, either a, a backed stable coin, meaning there's a third party organization that issues stable coins into creation digitally, and that those digital representations can interoperate with other uh, digital assets, maybe on exchanges, maybe internal to the blockchain itself, like in the case of Ethereum. Um, but regardless, there's a third party uh, who is issuing those stable coins into existence. And they promise through some mechanism that they have those uh, equivalent real dollars um, in reserve somewhere, right? Um, now, that's very different than, say, an algorithmic stablecoin, which is, you, you alluded to earlier, the idea that a developer would issue code into existence, which would try to algorithmically maintain that, that stability. It would go out into the world and source uh, some other asset as collateral, and then you know, hope to uh, over collateralize it to provide confidence that it will maintain its peg. Uh, but what you're saying is that whether it's a centralized party uh, issuing it to existence and then promising to have it in an account, or whether it's an algorithmic construction, that at the end of the day, they can't guarantee 100% stability of the promised stablecoin. There is no, there's no edge case that exists where they have 100%. Uh, there's a hundred percent possibility of, of making sure that 
that those things are going to be redeemable at the end of the day, right? When you actually go to spend it and have your, which, you know, my debts are denominated in real dollars, not stable coins. So when I have to go pay my mortgage or my electricity bill, um, I, I would ultimately have to exchange from the stable coin into the real dollar. And, and at that point, it has to be 100% uh, perfect, right? No, no losses or friction there. And then, and then I, but at this point, there's no one that can guarantee that except the sovereign who issues it. Is that yeah, correct? But, uh, yes, with, with one clarification on your last point, which is that even in situations where you can make the settlement in the stablecoin itself, you're making the settlement relative to a unit of account that is independent of the stablecoin. That is to say, you may have $100 in stablecoins and a $100 debt, and that, the person on the other side might be saying, I'm willing to accept stablecoins, but that is no guarantee that they will accept $100 of this particular stablecoin at $100 worth of value which is exactly what we saw in the history of banknotes is the banks would issue a piece of paper, a banknote that would say, this is worth $10, right? And you would use it to pay debts denominated in dollars. Other people would accept it as an equivalent forms of payment as US, you know, as coins or, or notes issued by the US government, right? But they would discount them. They would say, ah, I don't really trust the safety of you as the issuer here. You know, I don't know whether you're legit. So I will accept this. I will take that risk on, but I'm going to discount it by say two, three dollars. So suddenly you're paying a $10 bill, but you're only and you're settling it in that bill, but you're only getting seven dollars in the unit of account. And that in and of itself is destabilizing because suddenly every time you go to make a payment, you're not only haggling over the price or the amount of the payment, you're also haggling over the discount rate on the instrument. And what we've seen throughout history is if the US government is issuing the dollar, the price may change, but $10 is always worth $10. That is not the case with private instruments that look to be safe. And the, the obvious example here is the money market mutual funds in recent time. They issued shares that were supposed to never break the buck. Right? They might actually increase in value, but they would never go below a dollar right up until the point that they did. Now, to your, but to your first question, yeah, I think you're completely right. There are all different ways that you could design how to enforce an obligation right? or how to guarantee or try to guarantee an obligation. So one could be you store money with somebody else. Another could be you put money in a safe somewhere and you only issue back exactly what's in the safe. and You have a little camera on the safe all the time, right? Another way is that you lock up digital assets on a blockchain and that you, you, you know, put the secure way of accessing or releasing those as part of the smart contract. But all of those, all of those differences are on one side of the ledger. They're on the asset side. They're on the backing side. They're on the guarantee side. They're not on the liability side of what's actually being promised, right? And so all of those are ways to show I'm good for it. But the question of what they're good for is actually the same. It's actually the same. The promise is something that's value is fixed or so stable as to render it effectively fixed, right? In denominated in the US, uh, in the dollar of account of, of a sort of fiat currency. And that promise is where the risk comes in because the goal of these systems is to look and walk and talk like you're safe. That's the value proposition. The reason that Tether is now underlying you know, 80% of all volume transactions in crypto world is not because it's somehow a superior technology to any other sort of blockchain or anything else out there at the moment, any other kind of token. It's because people want an instrument that they can treat like a US dollar. That's why. And they need an instrument that has the functional effect of being a US dollar that they can use in their context.
that's what that's why it's so special. And and I think you know to your point, I think we've seen um, and fairly recently, particularly in March, uh, periods of systemic risk where outflows from digital assets, be it Bitcoin or the rest of the market, into things like Tether. Um, yielded imbalances in the stability of that coin, right? It, it doesn't always maintain its perfect peg to one. It kind of floats with supply and demand for that tether. Um, and so, you know, all, as proof of principle, to your point, is that we've seen that these things are, uh, it's impossible to maintain their stability, particularly when you have edge case scenarios that occur, these black swans, uh, and then everybody, you know, the entire market's trying to exit and use that, the stability of that promise, essentially, to hedge their risk. Um, and, and what I find super interesting is, you know, Tether being one, there's, you know, USDC, the algorithmic variations are things like make a DAO, uh, the, the DAI uh, coin. Um, these things all basically rely on the same fundamental premise that they'll redeem the dollar when called upon and they can't. That's the that. obligation side. Yeah. That's right. And they have very different models of how they guarantee that. But, you know, people say, well, go off to Tether, go off to Circle, but leave make a DAO alone. Well, Actually, I think as a structural issue, Megadai is far more dangerous, far more unstable because Tether and Circle, yeah, you need to make sure that the assets that they've got in some account somewhere actually exist. And I think that's where Tether doesn't. But with Megadai, you're actually relying on the integrity of a, a blockchain and the code there that's locking up those assets. And if something goes wrong there, there is no other counterparty. There's no one you pick up the phone to. There's just the network itself. That's an incredibly dangerous source of risk because the assumption there is that, oh yeah, there's no, there's no problem in the code. There could never be an ambiguity in the smart contract. There could never be a flaw that could be exploited to have you know, one actor take over the whole network in some way that we have not thought about. The code is perfect. It can only, you know, it can only be failed. We can never, it can never fail us. I don't think that's true. I think the history of MakerDAO has already shown that those flaws in the code can exist. But more generally, and people like my old law professor at Cornell, James Grimmelman, have written, you know, all smart contracts are inherently ambiguous in some respects, whether it's the oracles, whether it's the interpretation of the code at the point of legal enforcement of the underlying contract, whether it's about disputes over who has a valid claim to a, a cryptographic key or whatever else, that there are points at which these smart contracts have to be mapped onto an actual legal system before they become legally enforceable. And it's not perfect. These are the, the idea that code can be law is, is an imperfect analogy. As much as I respect Larry Lessig and, and all the people who've done that work, the reality is that you cannot substitute the messy, evolutionary, you know, reactive, inductive process of lawmaking down to code. And it's like saying, you know, the Trunchbull in, in Roald Dahl's Matilda saying that the perfect school has no children. Well, yeah, there's certainly less administrative work, but you're kind of missing the point. <laughs> and I think in that case, what's being conflated is the idea that the, ex the, the execution functions of a computer in their perfect precision, floating points aside, that in itself is what lends the um, idea that maybe the smart contracts are in themselves perfect in, in their execution. That's true. They will do exactly what you tell them to do. But if it's the human telling them what to do, humans being imperfect, naturally that will um, that, that that will inevitably arise in the smart contract. So there really is no way to get around that. Yeah, and 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 the question of yeah, the question of what updates to put in, the question of who gets to make a decision about the the trademark on the, the underlying. Yeah. yeah, there's a huge you know uh, Angela Walsh has written a huge amount about the kind of veil of decentralization that a lot of these, these networks use to hide who is actually making important decisions and who is structurally important. You know, if you have a, a large mining pool and, and that's keeping up the whole system and then 
you know, they, they get turned off or they decide to change, you know, networks and invest in something else that could destabilize a whole stablecoin ecosystem. And if that stablecoin ecosystem is propping up another 30 or 40, you know, crypto ecosystems underneath, because that's the sort of base pair asset or something that is a source of systemic risk for the rest of the crypto sector there. Now imagine you add three zeros onto the overall, you know, amount of balances held in that system and say, you know, perfect future world, suddenly our grannies are using cryptocurrency. Well, that's a major source of systemic risk, not too dissimilar to the other kinds of shadow banking risks we've seen throughout history. And that's a systemic risk to the participants in that particular ecosystem or to the general public? Both. It's a systemic risk to the actors holding those funds that think it's safe. And a lot of the responses I've heard are, well, we know it's not safe. We know you're taking a risk. Yeah, but that's not how the public understand this. And that's not the long goal here is to make this stuff widely used by average people. They don't get up every day and check whether their $100 bill actually says 95 at the top instead of 100. They know it's 100. It says it's 100. Now, maybe prices change, sure. But the dollar bill itself, 100 is worth 100 is worth 100. And if you wake up every day and there's a risk that's worth 95 because of some black box stuff going on with code you don't really fully understand... That's, that's a source of, of risk and a source of exploitation. Um, so it can affect the people who are holding balances in these stable coins, but it also could affect the broader economy. I mean, this is what we saw with 2008, is that when the shadow banks go down, every other market, every other platform that's dependent on them is also at risk. And people are saying right now, well, if you try to regulate Tether, you, know, you, you, would, you would affect Bitcoin. Well, that tells me something about where Bitcoin's systemic risk is, right? Mm. If Bitcoin can't survive without an unlicensed stablecoin, then how, and that, and that stablecoin is in and of itself dependent on the banking system, then how separate is Bitcoin from the banking system, mm. right? That, you know, if the, Euro, if the Euro dollar market in Europe can't survive without a liquidity backstop by the ECB, which is given from the Fed, how independent is the Euro dollar market from the US financial system? Not much. Right. You know, one of the things I guess that's not talked about often is the idea that uh, Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies rely on infrastructure, uh, cradle to grave, that is denominated in something other than their own currency. Right. So in other words, you you alluded to uh, uh, miners, for example, node operators, Um, all of the electricity bills, the manufacture of their compute, uh, the administration of, of all the processes is in some real world jurisdiction somewhere. And it's paid in real world fiat currencies to some debt, you know, someone who they owe debt to. Um, and so, the, so so kind of the entire framework or, or architecture of these digital assets is on top of some pre-existing fiat architecture, whether we like it or not. And yeah. really the only way to divorce yourself from that is to have your entire life cycle denominated in your native digital asset, right? Because then at that point, um, you know, but again, you would get back to the problem of how do you resolve local disputes, geographic disputes uh, regarding that. Let's say you know two two parties um, own a set of ASICs, you know, an ASIC mining farm, and they have a disagreement, and everything is denominated in Bitcoin. How do they then resolve that conflict if there's a difference in what direction to take the company? Who do they Absolutely. who do they seek uh, recourse from? Uh, it's going to be the local government, and so. Um, I, I, I kind of I tend to agree with you that there's really no way at the moment that's clear to me to divorce the enforceability of contracts geographically with the kind of monetary policy of, of fiat, right? That that's a long ways off, I think. I think we're kind of jumping the gun a little bit. 
Well, yeah, you, you could go to the Canadian wilderness, right? And even then you're selling pelts and there's a sales tax. Or even then, you know, you don't put the markings up around your property and someone comes on and injures themselves and they've, you know, you, you can get sued for that, right? I mean, there, there is no place on the planet that's devoid of public accountability through some legal system. And I know that there are people that want that. And I'm sorry that they've been so traumatized by collective governance that their only solution is to sort of don't tread on me. But that's not an actual premise to run a society and run a planet on which we're all accountable to each other. You know, if everybody in Bitcoin went to create a seasteading, you know, platform off the Pacific Ocean and then consumed so much electricity, they contributed to global warming. Um, then the fact that they happen to be doing that on a platform in the Pacific Ocean doesn't mean that the rest of the world isn't. <laughs> able to hold them accountable for that and liable. I mean, there, there is no sort of cyberspace outside of the flesh and blood world that we all live in. And the same people who are writing those things, sending their kids to school, right? Sending, they, 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 they get ill, they go to a hospital, right? They drive on roads where there are speeding laws, right? The, the world is constructed by public institutions and public law, whether people want it to or not. And it's really not our fault if people are kind of in denial about that. <laughs> So do, do you think that's kind of a, a lot of the source of the antagonism towards um, the, you, you and the, this proposal in general of the Stable oh, yeah. Act that, um, you know, the, the, the people making the, the criticisms or the attacks are kind of have already checked out ideologically from this acknowledgement that, you know, we have this public system, this this uh, opportunity of governance that we all are responsible for. And they've kind of checked out of that already ideologically and therefore, um when it's just reasserted in kind of the domain that they thought they carved out, uh, it, it feels like almost like an attack, right? In other words, a lot of people will feel that the space is being attacked because the uh, the legislation being proposed is kind of asserting the power of the sovereignty and, and providing that clarity. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's exactly right. And I think you see this again, this is not the first time you've seen this story in history. You ask a, a, a bunch of international bankers in 1905 who they're accountable to, and they say themselves and their shareholders, right? They consider themselves above the nation state. They consider their work sort of transnational. And they're really the extension of mercantile guilds that were competing for being the kind of sovereign legal entity in spaces going back to the medieval period, right? They consider themselves not accountable to these populations right up until the point is a crisis. And then they come to them and say, you need us. We, 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 you need to support us. We, we're providing crucial services here. You can't leave us out to dry. The whole world will collapse. And suddenly, these actors that are sort of Ayn Randian kind of ubermenches are, are coming with their cap out begging for support. And we see it every time. It happens over and over. Ask again. Ask the people who are creating derivatives in the 1990s why they thought they should do that. And the answer is private actors can ascertain risk between each other. We don't need the government coming in and telling us whether this is something that should be allowed or is good for society. Let us create collateralized debt obligations and CDSs and CDS squares. And if somebody screws up or takes the wrong side of that bet, that's on them, right? That's not your problem. That's between sophisticated market actors who can work the risks out for themselves. Oh, shit. We didn't realize that it caused a massive systemic risk. You're going to have to come bail out the whole industry. Whoopsie. That's the story over and over. And frankly, you know, it, I think the internet freedom movement, which I believe deeply in, kind of lost its way by pursuing this strategy because then when they did come up against these questions of regulation, they weren't equipped to deal with them because they had this binary narrative. And so some of the work that I've done with Rashida Tlaib has been about creating an anonymous, anonymous form of digital e-cash because I believe that privacy and anonymity in payments is incredibly important to political freedom. But it's so important that we can't do it by building a whole infrastructure, again, as you said, on a pillar of sand. 
We can't do it by assuming that the e-cash instrument that's going to be the basis of that private anonymous economy will be one issued by private actors and could be destabilized because then if you're the state and you want to get rid of any anonymity, you just wait for that thing to collapse. It's very easy. And then you just don't support it. And you say, yeah, well, you black market. What do you expect? If you actually want privacy and anonymity to be a value that's respected by the public authority, you have to do the difficult work of fighting for it, of actually making a case why anonymity and privacy is a public good, not just something beyond the reach of governments, but something that governments have to affirmatively defend and protect. And if we have a society where that value is dead, I guarantee you the private currency won't be enough to save you. If they're taking people out of their beds for dissent, if they're, if they're shutting down electrical power plants that are providing electricity to go to your node or whatever else, I guarantee you whether Bitcoin is private or not is not going to be the determining factor for whether you are safe or not. I, I tend to agree with that sentiment. Um, can you define a little bit about uh, the properties of what you would propose as e-money, and maybe do um, maybe differentiate a little bit on how that that that's not this that may not be the same as CBDC, central bank digital currencies, because I think that that, that requires a lot of clarity. And um, there's kind of a delicious irony to the kind of the Bitcoin movement as a counter criticism to the central bank policies, or even the systemic failure in, in 08. Um, and yet where here we are now kind of uh, creating new, potentially new systemic failures. Uh, uh, so, okay. So first, if you could just um, enumerate yeah. a little bit the differences between e-money and CBDCs and then talk a little bit about kind of that irony. Well, yeah, e-money as, as a term that in different jurisdictions means slightly different things, but usually refers to some sort of balance that is a representation of dollar value that would often be backed by some actual government guaranteed or government insured deposit uh, somewhere else. But in the context of CBDC, you know, the, the reason I don't like that term, I prefer the term digital fiat currency or digital public currency, right? Because if you think CBDC, the first thing you think of is it's issued by a central bank. And the first, so the first thing you're doing is you're limiting the whole scope of government institutions that could be involved in digital currency space to one institution, that institution being one that is particularly ideologically captured by certain interests or representing of certain interests. And so in the same way as I don't think that central banks are the only macroeconomically important public institution, I think, for example, the Treasury Department in most countries is actually very important too. I think Treasury debt is a form of public money that actually large institutional actors hold as a form of money, even though we think of it as debt compared to currency. Um, and so Digital fiat currency is a term that is broader and covers any kind of money, digital monetary instrument issued by any government actor. And I think that's important, first of all, because it, it keeps our imaginative space open to different solutions. Maybe we want something to be issued by Treasury, not central banks. But it also means that central banks aren't in the exclusive position of defining the agenda. You ask a central banker what they think the internet can do, and they'll say, oh, it can make a better bank account. Well, right. right. That's because you ask the central banker and that's their job is to think like a banker or think like a central banker. Now, you ask the person who's in charge of the mint or who's in charge of printing the notes, they might say, well, we could create a digital version of a token, right? And the token could circulate without an account, without a registry of every user, without a single ledger, whether it's a distributed ledger or a centralized ledger, right? There is no ledger. If I go and buy, you know, weed behind the schoolyard uh, and with, with physical cash, the, the cash doesn't keep a ledger transaction there anywhere, right? The cash itself is guaranteed by the government. I'm not, I'm not using Chuck E. Cheese dollars and I'm not using banknotes from the private bank in 1820. Right? I'm using government money there, but the transaction itself happens off chain, happens off, you know, off uh, ledger. And so when it comes to CBDC, often that instantly becomes 
digital bank accounts. And then what you hear in the conversations is central bankers who frankly don't have experience in questions of civil liberties and privacy, right? They say, well, of course, full anonymity is out of the question because we need to have anti-money laundering and know your customer rules. But they're applying the legal regime that applies to bank accounts to this digital instrument. And frankly, that isn't the regime that applies to physical cash. So you don't have the same anti-money laundering and know your customer rules. Maybe you have some, you know, you can't take $10,000 on a plane and there's attempts now to reduce that number down to a very, very low number, which um, a number of, you know, people in, in the crypto world have been opposing and I support their opposition because I think that is draconian. But, uh, but they, they use the legal framework of bank accounts as the basis for their discussion of CBDCs. I think that's wrong. I spend a lot of my day actually fighting those people in those rooms and arguing with them and saying, you're being overly narrow. You're reinforcing a certain vision of digital currency as the only vision. And frankly, you're doing so without the right kind of expertise. Right? You're not having the ACLU and civil liberties people in the room. You're not having consumer groups who care about privacy in the room. You're doing this with you and law enforcement, and that's not okay. And that is the kind of room where the fight over the future of privacy in, mon in the monetary privacy is being decided right now. Those are the actors that are going to make the decision whether your grandmother can ever live her life and pay her taxes and go to the store without every single transaction being recorded and potentially censored and surveilled. It's not going to be the Bitcoins of the world where that fight is had. It's going to be the room where Mark Zuckerberg sits down with the head of the NSA and the head of the treasury and makes a decision about what a billion people get to use tomorrow. And every minute, every minute that we're focusing on that other stuff, we're not focusing on that fight. Yeah, um, you know, it's super important to differentiate the properties of money versus cash in the terms of their privacy. And to yeah. your point, uh, you know, the, the, I personally respect a, a privacy and, and the ability to transact without being on ledger as something very valuable to me. And if I want to express that, I do so through my representation in Congress, right? And so the idea or, there Or in the be, streets, right? Or in know, the streets. That's right, through protest, right? Now, um, you know, the central bank, uh, to your point, has kind of this lens that they view the construction of, of their of their charter, right? They're trying to create into existence to uh, basically meet their charter, whatever it is, unemployment, interest rates, whatever their charter is. They, they, they're not, they, they have no structural consideration for the our charter, like for privacy or for how- yeah, They're not, they're not the used. central authority for civil liberties. Right? Right. They're the central right. bank. <laughs> Yeah. That's right. Whereas Congress is, right? Congress yeah. and, and, and so uh, is uh, arguably the president and their representative who's the Treasury Secretary. And so if right. you were going to ask me whether the Treasury or the Fed was likely to be more accountable to those or, or more susceptible to those kinds of political pressures, I'd say it's the Treasury, which is precisely why if we're going to talk about digital fiat currency, I want to make sure that there's room in the conversation for the Treasury and for you know the, the people like the director of the Mint and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And maybe there needs to be a Bureau of Digital Tokens, right? Or something alongside them. But if you look at the history, it was the Mint and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, which are at Treasury, that was responsible for issuing the tokens that were private and anonymous and, and able to be transacted in a decentralized way. It wasn't the central bank. If the central bank needs Federal Reserve notes that go in your pocket today, it calls up the Bureau of Engraving and Printing against them to make them and send them over. So as a just a straight up historical matter, the institution responsible for these things, for, for similar kinds of instruments, has been Treasury. the Treasury, at least in the United States. And, and the other part of that is that when it comes to kind of questions about 
uh, how anonymous this should be, there are there are other considerations that, frankly, central bankers are not equipped to deal with. So there is a tension to some degree between the the surveillance potential uh, of of a purely you know visible currency that can be censored uh, and anonymous cash. Right, the question of kind of how much sort of child pornography and terrorist activities should we allow to happen in the name of preserving civil liberties is one that actually requires a genuine discussion of trade-offs there. And frankly, you know, most of the people who run the central bank got a PhD in macroeconomics, which meant, you know, studying, studying theoretical algebraic and statistical models. It didn't mean sitting down and discussing, you know, the right balance between privacy and surveillance in, in, a, in a digital world. And I think those are the kinds of questions we need sort of dedicated actors to, to be focusing on at, at something like the treasury. Uh, but again, we're not going to even have that conversation if most of the people who understand the importance of these things decide that it's easier to just sort of go off and try to build a private utopia. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake of attention and energy. And I also think uh, it's important to point out that, uh, you know, behavior kind of follows incentives. And if we think that perhaps uh, privatization uh, would somehow ameliorate a lot of these problems, I mean, it's very simple to point to, you know, uh, credit card companies, for example, they have all of our private data. Uh, um, I just don't see it likely as they or Facebook or anybody else who creates a digital asset um, really has any incentive to protect our privacy. Uh, I don't see why they wouldn't monetize that data because it's so valuable, right? You can sell yeah. it to, to advertisers and, and, and yeah. And, and, and then, so, and, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I'm, I was just going to say that you could you create behavioral incentives they, as, as benefactors of that data set, can create behavioral incentives for purchasing, for punitive, punitive reasons, et cetera. So I, I'm not entirely sure that you could point to the private sector and say, well, they'll, they'll be the savior out of this problem. Like they, They'll save us away from the central banks. Um, so it's really kind of we're arguing is the lesser of the evils here when we should be discussing uh, maybe that you know, it's our responsibility as citizens to put pressure on our government to craft uh, public goods. Yeah, and 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 Circle is just entered a partnership with Visa, right? If Tether manages to survive, survive the audit that it's going through now, legally enforced on it, you know, the answer that it will come up with again is partnering with the formal banking system. And as you say, historically speaking, it is these private companies who are the wedge of the spear uh, of totalitarianism because they collect all the data in the name of profit, and then it becomes easier for them to hand it over to governments than to to defend it. At that moment, you know, all you need to do is put pressure on Mark Zuckerberg, and you get the entire of his database, right? So, so the question of whether these private companies, and remember, for all of the talk about decentralized crypto, how many of the actors actually making these are limited liability companies, are getting shareholders, are getting investors, right? How you know, MakerDAO is is one actor within the Dai system, but a pretty important one, right? And and they are doing that with the expectation of return. And even if you're not a company whose job it is to generate profits, even if you're just an individual whose job it is to make more money on your investments, and that's maybe the top priority and then political freedom, or maybe it's the second priority after political freedom, but it's still a pretty important one, then all of your decisions, all of your value judgments there are going to be clouded by what's going to lose me money, what's going to make me more money. And frankly, that's not a good way to do public policymaking. If I had a vested stake in charter schools or in, you know, Coursera, and then I tried to make education policy, that would be a clear conflict of interest because I would be always incentivized to look more favorably on the things that are making me money right now. And part of our point is that shadow banking activities are very profitable for the actors engaging in them in the short term. The problem is that it's the public that's left holding the bag. So if you have a theory of how 
average people who don't have the resources to become competent in these tech discussions or to run a node or to have mining equipment or to speculate savings that they somehow managed to accumulate while on a $5 an hour minimum wage, et cetera, are going to have the voice and the stakeholder representation in these networks that they deserve. Um, good luck. I haven't heard it from most of the, most of the crypto world. Um, and obviously public governance and democratic institutions in the nation state are imperfect but they have at least committed to that as a governance model, that everybody's voice should be equal, that it's not about how much money you have or how much property you own, right? It's not about whether you have the capacity to run infrastructure. It's about you have a heartbeat on this planet and these decisions affect you. And that's the level of stakeholder involvement. Yeah, and it seems to be a very fundamental tension of, of acknowledging that specific point with respect to uh, progress, right? That the idea that, that somehow those two things are mutually exclusive. That if you decide that you want to um, be, de you know, uh, continue to support these democratic institutions that maybe you still have confidence in, that somehow that 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 all that, that means that you cannot uh, support progress or that you cannot support changes that utilize this technology for for the common good. Um, I, I'd like to bring up one question. I guess one final point here uh, or in question. Um, so where do you see this going forward? Because, you know, I, I, we see companies like Paxos that has a, a digital uh, staple coin uh, applying for a banking charter. Um, do you see that uh, if, if things like the legislation, uh, the Stable Act, as proposed, were enacted, would you see a trend towards more uh, stable coin issuers becoming like banks or perhaps banks starting to issue their own version of stable coins? And ultimately, where do you think that's going to lead how is that different than the banknotes of the 1800s? Um, and then eventually, you know, where does the systemic risk really going to come from? Let's do some yeah. forecasting. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both there. I think you're going to see some actors try to become banks. You're going to see some actors partnering with banks in ways that are approved. Um, and I think you're probably going to see some people deciding that it's not worth being in this space anymore. And that's where the kind of claims today that this is going to kill innovation and stuff. Well, to the extent that you know, issuing hyper-risky derivatives is an activity that we should have had less of in the late 1990s, then yes, yeah, some of this activity should be killed because it's dangerous and doesn't serve a public function, right? And so I think that there is a, a point at which what we're doing is trying to bring activities that in part exist because they operate in the shadows into the sunlight. And that might mean that some of them cease operating at that point because their entire business model is based on doing things that we wouldn't get away with if we were doing it out in the open. Right. And, you know, would, would Tether have existed if it hadn't been able to obscure what the hell it's been doing with all of its funds? Maybe not. Right. Right now, it's what 80% of all trading volume across all crypto. I mean, this is not a small part of the ecosystem. This is actually pretty foundational. And their entire business model is fraud. What if we had not allowed them to engage in fraud? Maybe there would be no Tether. Is that a huge loss? I don't think so, actually. I think that that probably would have made the rest of crypto more resilient because they wouldn't have built on top of a foundation of quote unquote stable coins that aren't actually stable. Um, and so, so partially it's putting things under the public banking system and partially it's making the edges of private speculative finance less profitable. And the alternative and the sort of complement to this is public institutions. So I would hope that we would also pass the Public Banking Act. We would also pass an act establishing e-cash wallets for everybody, anonymous e-cash that could be audited, that could all the source code, all the hardware and software would be visible to everybody to look at. It wouldn't be something behind you know, closed doors or a black box. Um, and we would also have a system of Fed accounts. And again, would be auditable with the recognition that 
those accounts are not going to be as private respecting as the cash because they aren't even today. And we would have a system of postal banks. And so if we had a world where we had uh, we had e-cash, we had Fed accounts, we had postal banks, we had a network of public banks that have been you know, set up much more easily with all the uh, infrastructural supports that the Public Banking Act proposes. And we had you know, robust macroeconomic investment, not just in you know, schools and bridges, but actually in the future of technology. And I, I think you know, people like Mariana Mazzucato's work on the entrepreneurial state, looking at the origins of a lot of technological innovation in public investment including, of course, the internet itself, um, that that classic case of private actors coming together was a government program long before it was private actors coming together. And, and you know, things like the iPhone and everything else that, that rely on public research underneath everything. Um, if we had a lot more investment in that, I think we'd see a lot more innovation. But that wouldn't mean innovation in the equivalent of risky speculative assets. It would mean we might see a lot more innovation in the kinds of front-facing clients that build on top of the e-cash or on top of Fed accounts. It might mean we have a lot more innovation in, you know, green technology rather than energy-intensive crypto mining, et cetera, right? So I, I think I think that the idea that innovation is at odds with public investment is, is true if you're an ideological libertarian who thinks that the state can never do anything right. And it's not true if you're someone that cares about history and about how most major sources of technology today were actually built. I mean, you know, we use Wi-Fi today uh, and, and it came out of technology de developed by the CSIRO, which is the Australian Public Research Authority. Uh, you know, as an Australian, I take particular pride in the fact that it was our public money that funded research that led to the development of Wi-Fi. Dabranet, for example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So um, in closing, I think, uh, you know, we should just acknowledge that, you know, the Stable Act was not necessarily an attack on cryptocurrencies and, and private money construction. However, it is yeah. reaffirming uh, the idea of uh, the dollar as a public good and that the yep. responsibilities that go with that uh, have to be acknowledged, respected. Uh, and, you know, it's not law yet, correct? So it's not, you know, it's, no, it was no, just it's introduced. Still yeah. It's still a bill. Um, so, you know, however strongly citizenry feel about it, this is the time to engage with your representation, to shape and craft the kind of uh, public uh, uh, laws that we want, right? So this is exactly the kinds of conversation that we need to have. It's not about shutting down the conversation or attacking the messengers. It's about public discourse. This is, this yeah. is the kind of meaning of citizenry right here. Exactly. And if people are concerned that a bill like this might target people who shouldn't be targeted, I'm, I'm, we were all welcome to hearing that a conversation. The, the, the challenge that we have up until now is that most people who are saying that kind of thing don't actually even agree there's a problem here. They don't actually even agree there's a systemic risk to be addressed. And they say, well, you can never stop it. It's inevitable, right? This is like the weather. This is coming whether you like it or not. And, and frankly, that's the same argument that people throughout history who've avoided taking responsibility for the systemic implications of their actions have always said. And it's not true. And just to, just to, just to quantify that, um, you know, I looked up uh, Tether over a five-year period uh, accrued about $6 billion USD worth. Uh, theoretically, one for one, and then in the in the four months subsequent to that, accrued double that, and so it's definitely growing in a nonlinear manner. This is an exponential trend, and likely with the popularity of digital assets um, as we see them now and in institutional adoption, it's likely that that trend is going to continue that nonlinear expansion. So, I tend to agree that uh, if if this discussion is not had and we don't have proper policy around it now. 
then it could definitely create systemic risk, not just for people in crypto, but for kind of the population at large who start using these as services, or particularly yeah, things I, like Visa. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and I, I'd say the systemic risk exists now, but the risk is that it manifests, right? And I think the hard lesson of banking history is the time to regulate is on the upswing. The time to deal with these problems is before they explode. And it's always a question of preemption, right? It, you know, you ask a private actor who's trying to build a nuclear power plant and they, they want to cut corners on the safety and they say, well, you know, the risk of something going wrong isn't that bad. Well, you don't wait until the nuclear meltdown to, to disagree with them. You say, no, this isn't good enough. You need to do better now because by the time the risk actually manifests, it's too late. So I think this is a question of whether you whether or not you agree with the scale of the risk, the risk is here. The risk is that exponential growth path. And we either deal with it before it becomes too big to fail or we deal with it afterwards. And if we deal with it afterwards, then we're just repeating the same mistakes of history and we're trying to avoid that. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll uh, one little lie. I did say I'd let you go after that point, but if I can hold you on for one, one final thought here. Sure. Um, a lot of the contention came from the idea that should this legislation be put into law, that uh, ultimately it could, it, the enforcement side of it could be directed at node operators. And so let's define a node operator, uh, first of all, and then why you think um, the law may or may not apply to them, um, and really what the concern there is, and how would a node operator avoid this problem in general? So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the, the first thing is to understand there's, there's two parts of the bill where there's sort of enforcement teeth. One is about the issuer of stablecoins, and the other is about actors that are involved in any commercial activity related to stablecoins. And the issuer of stablecoin part of the bill is the part that requires actors to get a banking license. So if you are actually one of the actors that can be held responsible for issuing the coin, then you can be held liable for engaging in unlicensed banking activity. If you're one of the actors involved in the broader ecosystem, it may still be unlawful for you to engage in activity unless regulators have approved it in writing. Now, to be clear, and as the bill states quite clearly, that doesn't require every individual to have their activities approved. It requires those activities to be approved. So if somebody wants to suggest as part of the rulemaking process under this bill that regulators should come up with a rule to say, if you're doing X, Y, Z activity, and that activity is not contributing to any of the other you know, systemic risks that this bill is concerned about, that we should be held exempt from liability, fine. That's completely consistent with this bill. The point of the bill is to say that the related activity around the token is also a source of systemic risk in the same way as issuing a security is one thing about the securities market, but there's also actors that trade securities. There's also actors that make markets in securities. And those can also be sources of systemic risk. That doesn't mean all those actors need to get a banking license, but it does mean they need to be held accountable for the systemic effects of their behavior. So there are two different things there. One is who's issuing and one is who's involved in the broader ecosystem. Now, in both situations, in both contexts, the aim here is to address the actors responsible for systemic risk. That's the point of the bill. That's what banking regulators are looking at. Remember, these are not actors that are sort of doing beat cop work. These are actors that are going after institutions that are engaging in activity that's posing a systemic risk to the banking system. Um, and if, you, if there's another actor in the ecosystem that's issuing the stablecoin, then they're the ones liable. So if you're, if you're running a node in a network where there's a clear issuer of a token, you're not the issuer of the token. You're not liable there. It's, it's definitionally not applicable to you there. The context where this debate came up and it sort of jumped to the most 
marginal edge case as a starting point is what if somebody issued uh, or created a network, a blockchain network or something else, where the only relevant actors were nodes, where there was no other actors involved, where you could not identify in the topology of the network anyone except individual nodes. So there was 10,000 identical nodes and that was it. And there was no one actor issuing the tokens. It was the whole network that would be responsible for generating and backing the tokens. In that situation, my response was, yeah. In that situation, that the actors who make up that network would be responsible. In the same way as 10,000 people who formed an unincorporated association that together engaged in unlicensed securities activities would be responsible for that collective behavior. And we see would that this, would that be like a RICO statute or it could how? be it could be like a RICO statute, but it would be under mm. this statute for now because we this mm. isn't criminal liability for the record. Mm. Again, there's people who use this to fundraise for their own organization, saying your cops are going to come banging down your door. This is about civil liability for banking, you know, activity. This is about as sort of dry blood as you get in criminal criminal kind of you know or law law enforcement. Um, but but the yeah the the issue here would be you would not be. Uh, you would be one of the people responsible for that network by your own admission. You'd be saying, there's nobody above me. It's only me running this network. Well, if that's the case, you're liable. And you know there, there are different actors who can be held accountable for existing networks. And my view is that be precisely because that isn't an actual description of any of the systems that work today, that's not the problem that's going to come up, right? You go after Ethereum, you're going to go after the on-ramps and off-ramps. You're going to go after the exchanges. You're going to go after the foundation that holds itself out as a, as a representative voice for a large part of the community, right? There are, there are actors that have already put their hands up as performing functions above the level of an individual node operator. And remember, of course, the no, even that law holds accountability only for commercial actors. Um, so if you're, if you're a non-commercial node operator, you wouldn't be liable at all anyway. And so, so really enforceability is, is irrelevant, right? The ability to actually identify and execute upon who those people are is besides the point, right? It doesn't matter that, uh, you know, an individual in that theoretical example where you had 10,000 yeah. node operators, that that's all they, that was the only layer. Um, it doesn't matter that they have the capability to inspect the underlying smart contract, for example, for like a DAO construction. That That's not the point, right? Is, is that? Yeah. The point, the point is recognizing that if you if, if a network is going to engage in activity that would be unlawful for any one individual to do, that those individuals can't hide amongst a crowd. It's that same veil of decentralization that, that Angela Walsh talks about. And, and one of the responses is, well, the node operator isn't validating any transactions, right? They aren't, they aren't effectuating the transactions, right? That's the miners. The node operator is just keeping a copy of the ledger. And, and here's, an, here's a sort of thought experiment for people and see if they, they may still disagree. But say you're part of a, a gang, right? And you're engaged in some sort of shakedowns, you know, you sort of protection racket in the local community. And your, your, your boss of the gang has, uh, has read his Harry Potter and he decides that, you know, he wants a Horcrux so that if any one particular <laughs> member of his community gets arrested, you know, it's not going to destroy the functioning of his whole community, of his whole operation. So I guess 10 people, each of them have to keep a copy of the ledger. Or that that's all the all the records of everybody who's been shaken down, how much they've paid that month, etc. Right, and each of those people uh, has to you know have a rough consensus with each other. That way, if one of them is skimming off the top, or if one of them is you know is a, is an informer or something, they can't mess with the ledger uh, or, or sort of you know plant from another rival. They can't mess with the ledger and undermine everything. So you've got some sort of resiliency of a, of a consensus base across across your ten people. 
Now one of them gets arrested and the other nine can continue keeping your books running because that's because you've got 10 copies, right? Beautiful. You have a distributed ledger. Now that that person gets arrested and then they say, well, look, I didn't do anything. I didn't sell anything. I didn't shake down anybody. I was just keeping a copy of the ledger. I'm just one of 10 people. Why are you holding me accountable for the actions of this whole enterprise? Does that actually sound like a, a viable theory of why you're not responsible there? Not to me. And certainly <laughs> no. I don't think to anyone who's ever prosecuted anyone involved in organized crime. The answer is keeping a ledger, just keeping a copy of a ledger, because there is a structural value to the whole enterprise in distributing that accounting ledger. The act of running one of those nodes in that group of 10 makes you liable for the activities of the whole organization. Now, I don't think that means everyone who runs an Ethereum node is tantamount to part of a criminal conspiracy. But I do think the reason that they're not is because there are actors above them who are liable. If you say, hey, it's not me, there's just 10 of us. There is no boss. There is no capo. There is no, you know, there is no criminal activity. There's just the network. Then the only logical answer is that the network is liable. You can't, if the network is doing illegal activity and the only people who are responsible are the people running nodes in that network, then the nodes are liable for that activity of the network. It doesn't, it doesn't magically become nobody's fault the minute you add more people to an unincorporated association. Right. Wow. A lot to digest and think about there. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate just, first of all, coming on and then going through. I mean, that, that's amazing. The amount of content here, I'll, I'll be watching this several times myself. Um, but thank you again. I hope that uh, as this evolves and the conversation continues, that we'll have you back because I'm sure this is not the end of the story. This is really the beginning. And we're going to have to keep having this conversation as citizenry so that we get to a consensus. So thank you again, Rohan. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for having me. Take it easy.